0: This is Leo from Hannay, Connecticut, and you are listening to WNHHLP
1: 103.5 FM streaming at NewhavenIndependent.org.
0: Welcome to Book Talk, where we talk about books. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and today we'll be discussing the novel. First with author, Liz Moore, and then with my guests, Brad Ridkey and Deborah Cantrell. On our last episode, we ran out of time for our usual feature, a middle-grade recommendation from one of our wonderful New Haven librarians, but we promise that won't happen today. Make sure to stay tuned to hear a recommendation from librarian, Sandra Hernandez-Laguna. Heft is the story of two men, 55-year-old Arthur Opp, a morbidly obese recluse, and 18-year-old Kel Keller a high school senior and aspiring baseball star. The two are tied together by Kel's mother, Charlene, who was once Arthur's student. Though Charlene and Arthur haven't spoken in 18 years, for much of that time they have maintained a written correspondence, one characterized by lies and omissions. Arthur never told Charlene that he lost his job as a college professor because he had been accused of having an inappropriate relationship with her. He hasn't told her that he hasn't left his house in 10 years nor how much weight he has gained since she knew him. For her part, Charlene never told Arthur that she married, nor that she had a son. The novel begins with mutual confession and tells both the stories that underlie the confessions and the events that unfold therefrom. Earlier this week, I had the opportunity to speak with author Lismore, and I'd like to play that interview for you now. Liz Moore is a graduate of Barnard College and holds an MFA in fiction from Hunter College. She currently teaches writing at Holy Family University in Philadelphia. In addition to being a writer, Liz is also a musician. Her album, Backyards, was released the same year as her first novel, The Words of Every Song. Heft, which was published in 2012, is her second novel. And her third, The Unseen World, is due out this coming June. Liz, thanks so much for joining us today on Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM.
2: No problem, Sid. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So I wanted to
0: start by talking a little about the structure of this novel. Heft is written from two alternating perspectives, that of Arthur and that of Kel. But I was really struck by how long it takes for Kel's voice to come into the story. The first 70 pages, more or less, all belong to Arthur. And then there's another really long section that all belongs to Kel. Then we get a really brief, like, three pages of Arthur again another long section of Kel, and then it kind of switches form and we go into these alternating chapters between the two of them. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you came to that form and why you felt like that worked for the book.
2: No problem. Um, So when I, early drafts of the book actually had four alternating points of view. um, And it was, believe it or not, written in a third person, sort of four different close third person voices. One for Arthur, one for Kel, one for Charlene, and one for Yolanda. And um, those switched back and forth pretty rapidly. And um, the problem with that was that I found myself kind of keeping all the characters at arm's length a little bit. And um, I, was, I never felt like I was able to get close to them and understand them well, both probably by virtue of the fact that I was writing in the third person and by virtue of the fact that I felt like I wasn't spending enough time with each one of them before switching. And so I had a kind of breakthrough moment with um, where I thought the book just wasn't working. Um, And then I was sitting in a poetry reading actually. And um, all of a sudden Arthur's voice kind of presented itself to me sort of fully formed. And um, I started frantically writing as fast as I could to get his, voice and story down. And the opening paragraphs of the book are um, the first uh, words that came to me in Arthur's voice. And I found that I needed to um, spend a lot of time with him and with that voice um, to myself um, to get close to it. And so I felt maybe, I don't know if this is a conscious choice, but I imagine that probably the reader needed some time to get close to both characters, some some sustained time to get close to both characters before they felt like they could follow along when it started rapidly switching back and forth.
0: And then how did you come to Kel as the second voice that you wanted to to embody instead of Yolanda or Charlene?
2: Well, I don't actually know. Um, I suppose it's whatever voice... um, you know, some voices you can find and some voices you can't. And I, I couldn't, it's interesting that I couldn't find the voice of either woman character because one would imagine that I could more easily find those voices. But actually, it was Kel's voice who came next, which came next. And um, I was able to kind of uh, find a distinct voice for him pretty soon after Arthur's voice came. And then I found that it was really their story. And um, with Charlene's voice, I have a better explanation of why I couldn't quite grasp it, I think. And it's because I think part of her um, downfall or or part of what made her unable to live in the world is that she herself felt sort of voiceless. Um, She never was able to find confidence or... Um, a real identity outside of the identity of others. And I suppose that's why uh, it was very difficult for her to live in the world. Um, And so perhaps I started thinking of her that way.
0: Marty is um, Arthur's closest friend. Uh, She is um, someone who is both a colleague and it points a roommate and a neighbor Uh, But she's kind of a shadowy figure in the book. Did you ever think about her voice as a voice that you wanted to be more heard?
2: She was always a secondary character, but she did play a bit of a larger role, I think, in early drafts. Um, Arthur's, um, the middle years in between Arthur's youth and his middle age, so when he was in his 20s and 30s at one time, had more kind of space in the book including his, graduate, his years of graduate school and his years of um, kind of early adulthood after graduate school when, he was move, when he'd moved back into the house that his parents used to live in and formed um, as a close friendship with Marty. Um, and I, uh, I, I think I decided that um, it wasn't necessary to spend much time on those, or it wasn't serving the book to spend that much time on those years because um, the problem that Arthur was having and the problem that was central to the book was um, his loneliness. And that's where I wanted to begin the book. And that's where I wanted to spend the most time. If I spent too much time on years when he was more relatively happy, I think it would have slowed down the pace of the book. Um, They always, I mean, in, in screenwriting, you're told to kind of start, like cut the first Thirty pages that you write because typically they're just exposition and they're not necessary. And I think that rule can sometimes apply to fiction as well. So, I, I, although I like Marty as a character, I think her her uh, furthering her presence in the book or expanding her presence in the book wouldn't necessarily have served the story of the book.
0: I wondered about Marty a little bit because so many of Arthur's relationships with women are ones where he is really in a caretaking role. And that's certainly mm-hmm. true with his mother and with Yolanda, the maid who comes to clean his house and whom he ends up um, in some ways kind of adopting as a, as a, as a surrogate daughter um, and uh, and certainly with Charlene. Um, but Marty seemed different. And so for that reason, I, I was more curious about that relationship in a way they seemed more like equals. And I wondered if you intended that to be I mean, in, in some way, you know, Arthur in some ways conflates them. There's a line where he talks about how he has always, always had kind of a thing for unbeautiful women and, mm-hmm. and he lists them. And Marty is the last one that he lists and he sees her as, uh, as, as fitting into that pattern. And yet mm-hmm. I saw her as different. And I wondered if you intended her to be different in that way.
2: Yeah. I mean, she's a fully functional person. She can, you know, she has certain neuroses like Arthur does, but she's uh, independent and she has her own love life and social life and um, a career. And uh, perhaps that's also harkens back to the idea that when Arthur and Marty were friends, that represented a kind of um, a high point in his life. That was, that was when he too was more functional and when he too had a career and um, was outside the house. Um, and perhaps that's why he was able to sustain a, a more, sustain a relationship where his role wasn't necessarily caretaking. Um, yeah. Although I think he has, he, yeah, he enjoy. I, I'm not, I haven't fully parsed the psychology of whether it's healthy or not, that he likes to take care of people. I don't know. I mean, it's certainly part of him. I don't, know whether I think it's a positive thing or a negative thing or whether it represents some underlying, um, you know, malady of his, or, or whether it's just part of who he is.
0: Well, to me, it felt like it's, it's, it can be both, you know, I mean, it, in some ways it's a wonderful quality. He, mm-hmm. he is so kind and caring and, and generous and giving, but it also felt like, um, it gave him, a, you know, he talks about as a, as a teacher, how he felt like a priest or a confessor, and how mm-hmm. much he misses that feeling i think it gives him a yeah. sense of kind of being in control of having some power and he and so much of his life feels completely out of control um right and you know and it's that and and so and and he is often or feels looked down upon because of his size because of his social awkwardness um and to be seen as the father is mm-hmm. you know gives him gives him the opposite of that so you know i think Everyone's psychology is complicated. To me, that that made perfect sense that it could be both one of the things that's loveliest about him, but also mm-hmm. indicative of some of his underlying insecurities.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good assessment, absolutely.
0: You know, so it's interesting what you say about Marty, because I did want to ask you, um, I, someone tells uh, the school authorities, the dean, about Arthur's relationship with Charlene, um, which ultimately mm-hmm. leads to his leaving his job um, because of the concerns that it was an inappropriate relationship, and I was curious about whether it could have been Marty, and I wonder if I am just a naturally suspicious person, or whether um, you had you intended for that suspicion to arise.
2: Um, I suppose it wasn't part of. I, I didn't have a specific intention that that would arise, but I. I think it's an interesting question. Um, my prime. The suspect is his office mate. Um, And then
0: that was Arthur's prime suspect, but I thought maybe Arthur is being a little
2: too trusting No, no, I don't think, I think you're, it's not, um, it's not inaccurate to raise the question, because you know what, his relationship with Charlene is kind of problematic in certain ways, and um, I don't think he's a perfect character, and uh, I think Marty would certainly, was certainly not approving of his relationship with Charlene, and um, nor will some readers be, I imagine. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I my ima- in my imagining of Marty, which I have an unfair kind of not advantage, but I because I wrote so much backstory for them in an earlier draft, I wouldn't imagine that she would sell him out like that because she cares about his well-being. Um, she would be more likely to just tell him, you know, I'm going to tell someone if you don't stop this. Um, but, I. I don't think you're wrong to have wondered that.
0: I mean, for me, it was less that I thought, Mar- I mean, I thought Marty might've been truly disapproving of it, but I also wondered about the dynamic in their relationship. Again, there's, there's not much of it, in, and the little we know only comes from Arthur's point of view, but I could mm-hmm. imagine Marty um, liking the kind of dependence that Arthur has on her and her being the central figure in his life and having some mm-hmm. jealousy of Charlene usurping that role Um, and acting, you know, telling herself that she was acting out of a sense of morality but Mm -hmm. really acting out of that sense. But, you know, this is just me writing writing backstory for the characters who, you know, are the ones who appear so peripherally, but I think, for me at least, she was a character that I found um, compelling despite her peripheral uh, take on the page, you know. Um, That's cool. I, uh, I wanted to get back to Where we started with talking about how you found Arthur's voice, and specifically, I wanted to talk about um, the stylistic quirk in his sections, where every time he says "o," it's spelled with the letter "o" without the "h," Mm -hmm. and every time he says "and," uh, we use an ampersand. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, it's it's particularly interesting because it is not an idiosyncratic spoken voice. so if you were hearing the book as an audiobook, you wouldn't be aware of it, but it's right. idiosyncratic only in the sense that you notice it as a reader. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little b- more about why you chose to give him this mannerism that only translates in this way, in this form, and how you wanted it to function for the reader?
2: Sure. Um, well, those were always part of his voice from the, er- you know, the earliest moment that I started scribbling down words in his voice. And, um... Initially, I thought of it as a kind of um, written shorthand. Um, there are even, I think, a couple of places in the book where he writes "tho" or other abbreviations that um, people use when they're kind of scribbling frantically. And part of that was that I was—I ne- I almost never write longhand, but because I was in a poetry, I was in a public place, I was. Writing longhand, for uh, which is rare for me, and so I was using some abbreviations to try to get down my thoughts as as quickly as possible. And I imagined that he might do the same thing. I definitely think that um, he, he he writes longhand, although he has a computer. I imagined him writing down his thoughts longhand when he writes them, and I imagined him kind of jotting his 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 words down quickly, uh, kind of hastily, to try to catch them. At the end of each day, although um, only the opening chapter is explicitly written, it's a, a, it's a letter to Charlene or an imagined, a letter he imagined sending to Charlene. Um, the rest of it, I, I sort of always imagined him writing his own story, too, because I couldn't imagine him, you know, most voices I think of as a spoken voice. And because he has no one to speak to, it felt more natural for him to use some of the conventions of writing or written voices. But then I came to really start thinking of those symbols as representative of him in certain obvious ways, like the roundness of the O and the roundness of the ampersand, which came to me to to kind of visually represent Arthur to me in some weird way. And even the word ampersand and Arthur have a certain similar, I, I don't know, I just started I even imagined that the cover of the book might just be an ampersand at one point, although I don't have any say really in the cover of the books. Um, But yeah, the visual symbolism of them came to appeal to me as well. Um, And in my, it's interesting that you're bringing this up because I haven't thought about this yet, or perhaps this is a tendency in me that I'm, I've never articulated, but in the book that's, coming out in June, The Unseen World, and I do the same thing in one particular way toward the end of the book. Um, and I, I never, I haven't thought about the fact that there might be a similarity there to the use of the ampersand and the O in the past in until this moment. It's
0: interesting. Mm-hmm. interesting. I, I, to mm-hmm. me, it also, um, there was a way in which it felt kind of old-fashioned and quaint in a way that Arthur has a similar sort of old fashioned, gentlemanly quality. Mm -hmm. Did you feel that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. He, um, I think he's kind of, um, he grows up inside a cloistered world a little bit. He has a close relationship with his mother and he's not socially adept particularly. And, um, so I, I, and he has these kind of, um, he even says at one point that he spoke with a British accent until he got to school. Although he was living in Brooklyn because you know, his mom was really the person that he spoke to. Um, And so I think he, I imagine that as a child, he sort of spoke like as like an adult. And I imagine that he spoke kind of like an old fashioned adult because his mother would have grown up in, in the middle of, uh, you know the well, the early part of the twentieth century, and he continued her language and he sort of never lost it. Um, and also he has such a life of books and reading that he perhaps never learned to speak vernacularly the way that we do when we're surrounded by groups of our peers or groups of people using modern conventional speech. Um, yeah, and I, I guess he never lost that this is a book of a and lot maybe of, he I'm sorry to interrupt no, no, maybe please. he has it also speaks to something kind of uh chivalrous like the the whole caretaking thing he imagines himself to be this chivalrous yes chivalrous gosh, that was the character. word I was looking for
0: earlier chivalrous not so much gentleman yeah. there is that certain sort of level of chivalry and there's a kind of mm-hmm. there's a kind of formality um mm-hmm. to to the way he writes or his voice that I mm-hmm. think reflects that um so there are a lot of secrets in this book that are kind of gradually revealed, um, especially about Arthur's childhood, which goes a long way towards explaining who he is, and they come out later in the book. But there are a lot of secrets in the book that we never learn. Um, for example, yeah. we never really find out how Arthur's mother died. We never find out how Marty dies. Um, and we never find out, maybe most notably, who Kell's biological father really is, um, mm-hmm. or the, or the story behind. So how did you decide which were the secrets that needed to be told and which were the ones that should be left un, un, unrevealed?
2: Well, I know the answer to all those questions. <laughs> and I think um, it's always a question of whether they serve the book. Um, and I think the one that people react most strongly to is the question of um, who Kel's biological father is. And to me, um, I think that's a secret that Kel never finds out. And so it, it felt like, why would I, why would, how could the reader then possibly know? Um, it felt like if this is a question that Kel has to contend with um, for the rest of his life, then maybe that's it, 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 the, for the emotional, pitch of the book should mimic that, um, that kind of uncertainty. And I think there's a lot of people that do have huge questions in their lives that never attain resolution. And it is part of what motivates them and gets them up in the morning. And it's a quest for them. And sometimes they succeed in finding out the answer and sometimes they don't. And that's the what I think probably more readers have written to me about that than almost anything else. And I'm torn between feeling guilty about it and feeling like, you know, that's life. (laughs) You know, it's not meant to be tied with a bow always. Uh, And I know it's, there's a kind of um, um, satisfaction in the idea that not every question will be answered too, I guess. Um,
0: Yeah, I mean, for me, it did not feel like a a failing in the book. I was just curious about your Mm -hmm. decision, but I thought that, you know, the book really is, as you said, it's Kel's story and it's Arthur's story and it's, it's not Charlene's story. And the story of who Kel's biological father is isn't really his story. Um, mm-hmm. it's, Charlene, it's part of Charlene's story and, and we don't, mm-hmm. and she chooses not to share it with him. So mm-hmm. although, you know, we end curious, kind of wanting to know how that transpired, um, to me it felt right to not know. But I could imagine that, you know, as a writer, trying to strike that balance between how much you tell the reader and how much you don't and right. trying to make that decision. Right. And in,
2: in those early drafts, when Charlene had a third person voice, um, I spent a lot of time understanding who she was as a person in her teens and twenties. And um, I think that went into informing her as an adult, as you know, as Kel's. Um, mother, but it didn't, I just, there wasn't space for it, either, you know, page space or um, emotional space for it in the book. Just didn't feel right to include it.
0: I want to go back to something we talked about a little while ago um, when you mentioned that uh, Marty and then maybe some readers also might have a problem with Arthur's relationship with Charlene um, and, and might see something inappropriate in it, or even in his relationship with Yolanda, I think he runs the risk of being seen as very paternalistic. And he even says Mm -hmm. at various points, you know, uh, of Charlene, he says, I felt that she wanted me to educate her. And he says of, of Yolanda, I've begun to teach her things and to encourage her as if she were my child. Mm -hmm. How would you answer this charge of paternalism?
2: I think he is paternalistic, um, and I think that's a failing of his. Um, I mean, it, it, it certainly it brings out nice qualities in him as well. He's compassionate. He cares for um, people, I guess, by coincidence or not, specifically the women in his life. Um, I think um, his shortcoming is maybe seeing them as people to teach rather than people to learn from. Well, no. I mean, he he learns from them in certain ways. They, I think, you know, he's—they connect him to the world in certain ways that are necessary for him, and that's something that he appreciates very much about them. Um, But I think, you know, every character I write is flawed, and certainly Cal is flawed, and Charlene is majorly flawed, but also, I think, um, is redeemable in certain ways. Um, And if Arthur has a flaw, it's that he is paternalistic. Yeah, I think that's fair.
0: Well, it's been really great talking with you. I wish that we had longer to talk more. I have more things I'd like to talk about. Um, But I really appreciate your coming on, and I hope that maybe we'll get to talk about your next book, too. I'm looking forward to reading it. Yeah,
2: that would be wonderful. Thank you so much, Sid. It's been a real pleasure talking to you.
0: I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. I want to take a moment to introduce my guests, Brad Ridke and Deborah Cantrell. Brad is a Westville resident and high school English teacher, and Deborah, who has been on the program before, is once again joining us from Colorado. Brad and Deborah, thank you for joining me on Book Talk. Thanks, Sid. Thanks, Sid. I want to start with a quote. At this point in the book, Charlene, Kell's mother, has committed suicide, and at this moment, Kel has finally told Lindsay, his sort of girlfriend, everything that's been going on with him, both that his mother's death was actually a suicide, but also everything that preceded it, his mother's drinking and so on. And so the quote starts here. Why didn't you tell me before, asks Lindsay. Because I didn't want her to think of me as a bad kid. Because I didn't want her to feel sorry for me. Because I was embarrassed. Because I wanted to be part of a club that she was in. Because I wanted her parents to like me because I didn't want her to think I was complicated, that I would burden her. I say, I don't know. And what I really loved about that passage was I felt that that captured the high school boy so perfectly that he has all these things going on inside his head and all of these emotions that in his head, you know, are so articulated so well. And then in the spoken word, you know, he sort of mumbles, I don't know, and... To me, that really worked. It was one of the reasons that Kel as a character functioned so well for me was because we had access to everything going on inside him, but everything external was not articulated so well in a way that was believable. But I really wanted to ask you, Brad, as someone who interacts with high school boys all the time, how you felt about that character and if he worked for you.
3: Thanks. Absolutely. I think he did. Um, and I think you've Kind of put your finger on it there too is that we have access to him through his thoughts and ideas that are much more articulate than what he's able to enunciate outside um and i think in, in particular for me that passage gets at some of of what maybe other parts of the book get at too which is this um there's a kind of outsiderism right and part of his not wanting to tell Lindsay is she has this uh, perfect well except for the death of her brother, an otherwise perfect life, her family. The house is always described as as big and warm and full of food, and and he doesn't want to break some of that magic that he's able to get from the Pelham crowd. Um, And so I think as we accelerate towards the end of the novel, he finally decides that he's going to have to do some of that if he wants to get anything real out of this.
0: I think that you... You touch on a couple of things that seem to me really important to the book. So one is that sense of of being an outsider, and the other one is this attempt to fit in or to be what others want us to be. Um, I was reminded when you said that part about being an outsider of another passage um, when Arthur was talking about Charlene and why he was drawn to her. And he said, it was it was that I recognized myself in her, in her awkwardness, her loneliness, her being very out of place, an outsider in a room full of compatriots. These feelings I recognized as my own. And in some ways, I don't think of Kel as the outsider in quite that way because he fits in. You know, he, he is very good at fitting in. He's very popular at school. He's very accepted. And yet it's very clear that he does see himself as the outsider. And he sees himself as always um, putting on a facade to make himself fit in. And that's everything from the clothes he wears. And there's a passage about who he talks about on the first day of school in this new school, he wears the wrong clothes, but he quickly fixes that, goes shopping with his mother that afternoon to get the right clothes. Um, and I think we see that reflected in all, all kinds of places in the book, right? So um, there, are, there are so many characters who are trying to, to be the person that other people want them to be and putting on the clothes to embody that. And, it, and yet it fails.
4: Yeah, Sid, what you've said, what, what Brad said really resonated um, for, for me, as I, particularly as I think about all the different characters and the, the ways in which throughout the book there are these poignant moments where you see somebody feeling like they're an outsider and then you watch and see what they try and do to feel an insider, you know, tell feeling an outsider trying to right, wear the right clothes, but then also going back to his hometown and going to, you know, the, the, the friends he's had that knew him when he was the real him or Arthur letting, finally letting Yolanda in and Yolanda, not really Yolanda, the woman he, the young woman he meets because she starts doing house cleaning for him she doesn't really want to let him. He physically doesn't want to let her in. he lets her in. And then they both let each other see sides of themselves that feel more vulnerable or or genuine. And, and, and for example, the scene that we learn later in the book, when Arthur's describing that one visit he makes out to England to visit his dad and going to his dad's uh, apartment and how different it was from the house that they had had in the States. And, that moment of not fitting in and watching how his dad has completely different with this new woman who looks completely different. I found all those moments just beautifully written and so poignant.
0: Yeah. And with, you know, for me, that moment when, when Kel goes back home, um, is especially poignant because he doesn't fit in there either. It's like he has no place that is his, you know, he, he left, Yonkers where he grew up. I mean, he's continued to live there, but he's going to school in this very wealthy town now because his mother had had a job at that school and that enabled him to get into that school. Um, And he kind of can't go back, but he, so he has no place Um, and he has, and he has nothing. And then when Charlene dies, he has no one and he's so alone and isolated. And we see that reflected in, in Arthur also, who is similarly orphaned or essentially orphaned. His father is alive, but abandoned him much as kills the man he believes to be his father abandoned him um and i think it's i think it's in many ways a novel about isolation but also about um connectedness and the efforts yeah. we make to connect with people and and the things that those yield
3: exactly Sid. i was thinking too about the way in which this novel has people connect and it's often it seems to be through some kind of loss or abandonment right like he's finally Cal is finally able to make a, um, a much more lasting relationship with his would-have-been-girlfriend Lindsay um, when, A, they're able to, to let go of, of this idea of anything beyond a platonic friendship, um, and then, B, when they connect over over their respective losses. Right, When Cal has finally lost his mother, um, they're able to, to see something in each other about the loss of her brother, and... Um, so I there are probably other moments of that too, but it seems to be that uh, this is one of the things the book is doing is to is to focus these characters and, and find connections between these isolated people through their loss, which I think is a really kind of a, a magical um, observation on, on Moore's part.
0: Well, there's that moment when Lindsay and Keller are, are talking, or or um, I. Lindsay tells Kel, when someone in your family dies, you have to let people think they're helping. It's kind, it helps right. them, she told me. It helps them to think that they are helping. Um, and so it kind of goes both ways, that they are helping, they are helping you, but you're also helping them by by letting them in. Um, you know, and, and we see that, that, that paradigm of like loss and rescue and the way that helps both parties, I think over and over again. So Yolanda, the maid who Um, who starts cleaning Arthur's house and then ends up living with him for a time because she's pregnant and she's 18 and her parents have essentially kicked her out and she has no one. And she lets Arthur help her. And by doing so, he is able to help himself because he feels that he has something to offer, something to give. And I think for so long, he has felt that he has nothing, nothing to offer anybody. Um, And it's that it is... It is by her allowing him to give that to her that he is rescued.
4: And I also appreciated um, that we have some moments in the book, too, where connectiv- connectivity doesn't quite work. So Kel, Kel the son, meeting Kel the supposed father, and learning, well, that's not my father. And they don't really connect, and, and, and that seems right. Right. It didn't seem inconsistent. It seemed to be just a, um, a really lovely way in which Moore inserted these, these, way, these, these moments of saying, see, sometimes it really works and you don't think it's going to, and sometimes you really want it to work and it doesn't. And that's life. That's, that's that really fascinating way in which a web of relationships brings connectivity and disconnectivity um, support and non-support all at the same time. Yeah, And I, I like that Moore didn't make it too simple in some ways.
0: I wonder, though, you know, the ones that work, are they ones where people are sort of mutually reaching for each other? And if the difference yeah. is that it doesn't work when it's only one person doing the seeking. So I think the two times where yeah. we see that it really doesn't function are with Kel's, what he believes to be his father, Kel Sr., and then Arthur's biological father, where... Arthur and Kel in some ways are both seeking that father go, go to him, travel, literally travel yeah. to them and then find that they are not wanted. Um, but you know, the moments of connectedness are ones where there is, uh, where, where, where there's a mutual, um, a mutual giving. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. For me that I was curious about, um, I guess the kind of emphasis on this platonic relationship. I mentioned it in Kel and Lindsay that it really, it finally gets to take off and become something kind of not high schoolish anymore when they just decide that they're going to be friends, and we see that certainly in in um, Charlene and, and Arthur too. Although there's a kind of confusing moment there for a little while where you, you think it's platonic, and then oh, maybe it's not. It's suggested that that Kel is Arthur's son. He said, well, "Did I miss something? Right? Mm-hmm. Was it actually n- not sort of just a platonic relationship?" Um, and then. Uh, certainly in in Arthur and Yolanda again these sort of echoes that that relationships are allowed to be really kind of deeply meaningful because um, they they stay within a certain bound.
0: I don't know if it's endorsing that though I think that for I to me there felt like there was a qualitative difference in what was going on with Lindsay and Kel than what was maybe going on with. Charlene and Arthur, Arthur and and Yolanda. You know, with, with Lindsay and Kel, I still felt like there was potential there that that could develop into something romantic down the line, but that they sort of realized that this situation they were in was beyond them, that they were kind of in over their heads with what they were both struggling with, Lindsay with the death of her brother and Kel with the death of his mom and being truly on his own, and that getting into a romantic relationship was just more than they could handle and that what they could give to each other was, was less than that. But not that, that couldn't be within the bounds of conceivability. Whereas I think with Arthur, it felt, you know, his inability to engage in a romantic relationship felt almost like a, I don't know if disability is the word, but a handicap, um, you know, that he, that he, I think he wants that but he is so hampered by, um, by his own feelings of inadequacy that he couldn't even begin to broach that. He doesn't feel that he deserves it.
3: It's so curious, though, right, that then, then um, kind of as a compensation, what he steps into is that uh, paternalistic role.
0: Well, you know, there's a moment where he, he says that he sees himself as the priest, Right? He, right, he he compares himself when he's the teacher, and the students come and confess to him, and feeling like a priest. And I hadn't really thought about it until this moment, but there is something, you know, of this monastic quality of uh, being a priest, where you don't have to have any sexual relationship with anything, and yet you can still be paternal, you can still be connected, and and yet you're insulated, um, and there is some safety in that.
4: Yeah, and certainly, I mean, I think with Arthur too. The fact that he is, and we learn immediately that he is extraordinarily obese. Um, you know, we know that from the from the beginning of a, and 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 know that Arthur is worried that his appearances are just so off putting, and that that's a that's certainly a um, a mask for all sorts of other insecurities. But I also I, I thought it was interesting that Moore gives us a character who right from the get-go has some sort of physical uh, descriptor that most people in society find incredibly off-putting. And so she starts with, he, that's how he is at the beginning. We know he's remarkably obese and we have to work with him within that, those contours all the way through. Tell, you know, a very, it, my take was right, a very good looking young teenage Boy didn't have trouble attracting girls' girls' attention. So, just the juxtaposition there, and how the physical descriptions were doing work in the book um, to buttress or support or or help us understand the other components of these folks.
0: It's interesting because in, even though Arthur and Kel are really juxtaposed in that way. They're also, I think, in some ways mirror images of each other. Yeah. And one thing I really wanted to talk about was how many of the characters have mirrors in other characters. So and, and this goes and and it's not just and it's not just pairings, like the pairings the pairings shift. So I felt like Arthur and Kel in many ways had these parallels, both in, in this, you know, in very obvious ways. They're both named Arthur, right? Or Kel's real first name is Arthur. Um they are both left alone at a very young age. Their their fathers abandon them. Their mothers die when they're young. There's an intimation that Arthur's mother may also have killed himself, killed herself. Um, and, uh, and, And this sense of being an outsider and being unable to connect. And then you have someone like Charlene and Yolanda who are both pregnant at a young age. They both have these unsupportive parents. They both look to Arthur to kind of be their parent, to educate them. But then you have Charlene and Arthur who in some ways parallel themselves. They both uh, share addictions. You know, he's addicted to food. She's addicted to other substances. They both they both are addicted to lying. They both tell lies to make their lives seem better than their lives really are. And they both can't really face the world. And Arthur's response to that is to shut himself in. And Charlene's response to that is ultimately to drink and then to kill herself um, because she has to keep the world at bay. And, and there's more. I could go on. But I wondered for you two how how these mirrors functioned and, and, and what they did. You know, I was interesting talking to Liz Moore. She talked about the things she kept in and the things she kept out um, and how important it was to, she talked about how the function those played in the story and what she wanted them to do for the story. So what did these parallels do for you in terms of understanding the themes at play
3: here? Go ahead, Deb.
4: Yeah, so um, I, I think your your description, said is right on for me. I found, I experienced those parallels as I was reading the book. I, um, I appreciated them as I think for me, a reminder that what one might see physically on the outside that may look like difference may not show you nearly what you want to know. And that through understanding these characters, we saw, we saw mirrors, we saw resonance, we saw difference. Um, I also thought, for me, it was all, it was a reminder about how much common ground we just have because we're human beings. So you described lots of dyads, but I think we could put all of, all of those dyads into bigger clusters. And at the end of the day, when I finished the book, I felt like I had read and been enveloped in this extraordinary web of relationships, and that all of them were connected in some way, and that part of the loveliness of the book was... In fact, the mirror, but the mirror was a mirror, every character to every other character was, it was much, it was much, it was much richer. And there was this constant just pinging and panging back and forth of the characters with each other. And I loved that. I really loved that web.
3: Yeah, I would agree um, wholeheartedly, I think, especially, you know, the the structure of the book, we start with this really long section from Arthur and you sort of as a reader, you figure, well, that's what we're in for, and then we get a really long section of of Kel, and then as things you, you kind of accelerate, right, and we start pinging um, to use your word back and forth, and that uh, for me was a reminder that we're getting closer. These these characters are becoming less disparate and, and coming closer and closer to each other to get that kind of web. So, absolutely, when you finish, you just feel like you've had this kind of experience of 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 the human family, right? That 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 they're not. Um, disparate echoes of each other by which we're meant to necessarily uh, rank or compare one to the other, but to see and, and find in them the, the similarities and the connections. I mean, even the houses, right? A number yeah. of these characters are stuck with homes. Um, and mm-hmm. then to watch Kel compare the different homes and um, to remind reminder, I guess, of what everyone in, inherits. I mean, there's the literal reminder of what you've inherited and are kind of stuck with. And then, of course, there's that whole yeah. backstory of what you inherit from your parents and what they inherit from yeah. their parents, and the, the chain is endless.
4: One of the things, yeah, and I love that we we finish right that we finish the book with the with the neighbors coming over, the neighbors where the husband knows Arthur's father, blah blah blah, and right, with the web has just been expanded yet one more time.
0: And one it's, of the things I, I, I really loved about lovely. the about the parallels was that even in like really minor characters, there were these uh, these connections. So, for example. Um, there's this you know, really peripheral character. Uh, Kel has this friend Trevor, Trevor that he stays with briefly, and Trevor's sister, April, uh, appears on like two pages. But I was so struck by the description of her. I'm, I'm going to read it. Um, it says, uh, she's very smart and has long hair all the way down to her butt. and She wears glasses every day and reads all the time and is even reading now at the island. She's very fat, which I think Trevor and his entire family are embarrassed of. She's more than plump. Her body swallows the stool she's sitting on. Mrs. Cohen looks at her daughter from head to foot sometimes. I've noticed it as if she is wishing to be able to do something about her, about her fatness, to do something about it, the way you would do something about a leaky faucet. It is something I don't like about Mrs. Cohen.
3: That's what I love about these characters is that, I mean, Carol is so observant. I guess maybe I love him as a character. If there's a fault, it's is a high school boy that observant really and that kind of sensitive to what's going on around him? And I think... Maybe the answer really is yes. Maybe I mean not to that me that worked but. because
0: you know again that's all going on in his head. He's not saying it, and it's the kind of thing. I mean, he's, even his language. You know, he's not trying to be polite about it. Like she's very fat. Like she's not plump. You know, and I right. feel like he would be sensitive to that because he looks at the way people look at his mother. You know, and I think he's very conscious of how people see him and how people see his mother. And so, anyone who seems a little bit like an outsider, seems like someone who doesn't fit in. He's going to be aware of how all the people around her, including the people who are supposed to love her the most, are looking at her.
3: Well, that's just it. We get these cast, cast of characters, especially in Arthur too, who are outsiders, and then become exquisitely sensitive to the plight of others, right? Especially others who are outsiders. But they can just look at them and see. Cal can look at Trevor's sister and 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 feel on some level, right? That's not his physical shape. He's a by all accounts a stunningly handsome boy. Um, but he understands by virtue of being an outsider in, in in his school, right, what it must what it's like to be kind of looked at and perceived in that way. As does Arthur as, you know, he finds this connection with Charlene who he sees as an outsider. And they, they just understand on such a a deep and and kind of visceral level. They feel it.
4: Yeah, it's kind of interesting that when, when I was listening to you all talk about that, I was having this quick flashback to the scene when Kel and his school friends go um, back to Yonkers for that party. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the Kel's school friends then are really the outsiders at the Yonkers party. That is not their crew at all. and, and, you know, how we watch them experience being outsiders and, and what they do. And, you know, the way in which um, my perception was, you know, the, the folks in the story who haven't experienced being outsiders, when they have that moment, their response is not a sensitive response. It's a kind of belligerent, you know, get, get, get into a fight response. And I thought that was interesting because the, the outsider folks have this capacity to feel empathy in a way that I think, you know, others in the story do not. And we're reminded of that. when right. when they,
3: the They give it this very cursory summation. Well, that was Yonkers, right? Like they,
4: <laughs> and yeah.
0: I think that comes from a sense of entitlement and that yeah. the folks that we see as the outsiders in this story, Yolanda and Arthur and Charlene and Kel, are the ones who feel no sense of entitlement. And so um, I think those, those, his friends, when they go to that party, they're the outsiders, but they, they feel more like the observers. Like, you know, they're, they're just there to see something, you know, that's outside of their experience and they're witnessing it with this kind of bemused, you know, I, bemusement and uh, and so they don't feel like, Oh, we're outsiders. We don't fit in. There's no sense of not belonging. They don't know what that is to feel.
4: Or we don't belong, but that's, that's because you all don't belong and we just happen to be coming here to, you know, it's like, let's go, go to the zoo and observe animals in the zoo. It's that kind of really um, hierarchical, very dismissive, as you said, it's a, you know, privileged um, experience.
0: And I wanted to just to wrap up our conversation by talking just for a moment about the title um, Heft and if you all had a take on, on, on why that title and what it meant to you.
3: Yeah, I'll jump in. I, I was thinking that it, it, it obviously covers a lot of ground, but um, maybe to bring it back to that idea of of what we inherit, I mean, the literal weight of the, the things, the materials, the homes themselves, um, but also the the heft, the burden of what we come from.
0: Deborah,
4: did you yeah, have... Yeah, that really resonates with me, And and I suppose just to continue on, it's also the heft that we have going forward, the heft of our lives... Um, going forward, how we can, you know, how we can use it and marshal it. And even if things happen to us, we still are, there's a there there. There's something we continue on with.
0: I I was struck by the fact that it can both operate as a noun and a verb. And so it can both be weight and heaviness and significance, um, but it can also mean to carry and Mm -hmm. take with us. And I was reminded of one of my favorite books, um, The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien, and how the first chapter is all about the things we carry with us, both in a very literal way in Vietnam, the things the men toted on their backs, but also in a much more metaphorical way of all the, the emotional uh, and, and, and moral weight we bear. And I, I felt that resonance as well. Well, Brad and Deborah, it's been great speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining me.
3: It's been a pleasure, Sid. Thank you.
0: It has been a pleasure. Thank you both. I hope you'll both come back. This is Book Talk. I'm Sid Oppenheimer. Thank you so much. Next up, New Haven librarian Sandra Hernandez-Laguna offers our middle grade pick of the week.
1: My name is Sandra Hernandez, and I'm the branch manager for the Fairhaven Library. I chose to read and review John Green's Looking for Alaska. Recently, Looking for Alaska found itself on a number of New Haven public high school reading lists, After spending summer months making sure that students had a copy of the book and having read Green's other bestseller, The Fault in Our Stars, I decided to check it out. In true John Green's style, the novel toes the line between snarky and sweet. Nerdy Miles Halter has no friends at his high school in Florida. Inspired by the last words of poet Francois Rabelais, Miles is a savant when it comes to memorizing the last words of famous people. It's part of what makes him so nerdy. He decides to go in search of the great perhaps which in his mind means finishing high school at a boarding school in Mobile, Alabama. Upon his arrival, he makes friends with the school's misfits who are equally as brilliant and as misunderstood as Miles. It's one student in particular, Alaska Young, who makes the biggest impression on Miles and on the reader. Like most teenagers, she is mercurial and temperamental, yet she is anything but a caricature of standard teenage behavior. She is charming and magnetic, and both Miles and the reader are left wanting to know more about Alaska and wanting more of Alaska overall. Miles falls in love in that all-consuming way that teenagers fall in love, and pines for her in that way that only teenagers can pine. The other characters in the novel, particularly Miles' friends, are wonderful. They are smart and acerbically witty, the kind of friends you wish you had in high school. Ultimately, they prove to be good friends to Miles and to each other, And along with Alaska, they bring him closer to finding the great perhaps. Looking for Alaska isn't just a teenage love story. It is a story of firsts making friends and having those friendships tested, falling in love, experiencing loss and death, and finding a way to navigate through those emotions. It's a funny story filled with teenage pranks, funny scenarios, and near misses with school authorities. There's a little bit in the novel about the dangers of reckless teenage behavior and the consequences of that recklessness. But Green doesn't beat the reader over the head with it. Instead, he allows them to reach their own conclusions. The novel does not end happily, but it does end hopefully. It won't make readers cry in the same way that Fault in Our Stars will. It will make a beautiful movie set to be released in 2016. I highly recommend that people read the book before seeing the movie. I know that should always be the case, but it really is for this book in particular. Green's writing can be poetic when it isn't trying to just be witty or funny. And much of that poetry is lost in film adaptations, so sit down with it, read it, and savor it. You can find Looking for Alaska, as well as John Green's other novels, at any of the New Haven Free Public Library branches. You can also find the ebook via Overdrive or Hoopla at www.nhfpl.org. Hola, me llamo Sandra Hernández, gerente de Sucursa de la Biblioteca de Fairhaven. Esta vez decidí leer y analizar el libro de John Green, Looking for Alaska, Buscando Alaska. Este libro, Looking for Alaska, se encuentra recientemente en la lista de lectura de muchas escuelas secundarias de New Haven. Después de asegurarme durante todo el verano que los estudiantes tuvieran a su alcance una copia de este libro, y después de haberme leído su otro reciente ejemplar, The Fault in Our Stars, decidí echarle un vistazo. Conforme al verdadero estilo de John Green, la, nova, la novela alcanza un balance entre sarcástica y dulce. Miles Halter, un joven socialmente inepto, no tiene amigos en su escuela secundaria en la Florida. Inspirado por las últimas palabras del poeta François Rabelais, Miles es un sabio cuando se trata de memorizar las últimas palabras de los famosos. Esto es precisamente lo que a, lo hace tan especial. Miles decide ir en búsqueda del gran tal vez, que en su mente significa terminar la secundaria en una escuela de internado en Mobile, Alabama. En cuanto llega, se hace amigo de los inadaptados sociales de la escuela, que son a la vez tan brillantes y incomprendidos como Miles. Hay un estudiante en particular, Alaska Young, que causa la mayor impresión en Miles y en el lector. Como la mayoría de los adolescentes, ella es volátil y temperamental, pero es de todo excepto ser el estereotipo con el comportamiento normal de un adolescente. Ella es encantadora y magnética, y ambos Miles y el lector se quedan con deseos de saber más de Alaska y de querer más de Alaska. Miles se enamora con una pasión incontenible como solo los adolescentes se enamoran, y la anhela como solo los adolescentes anhelan a los que aman. El resto de los personajes de la novela, sobre todo los amigos de Miles, son fantásticos. Son inteligentes y poseen un humor incisivo, precisamente el tipo de amigos que todos hubiéramos querido tener en la secundaria. Básicamente, ellos son buenos amigos de Miles y buenos amigos entre ellos y junto a Alaska, hacen que Miles se acerque más al gran tal vez. Looking for Alaska no es solamente una historia de amor de adolescentes. Es una historia de primicias, de hacer amigos y poner a prueba esas amistades, de enamorarse, de experimentar pérdidas y muertes y de encontrar el camino para atravesar por todas esas emociones. Es una historia divertida, llena de bromas, escenarios cómicos y escapadas por un pelo de las autoridades de la escuela. La novela también trata del peligro y las imprudencias de comportamiento de adolescentes y las consecuencias que, se, que esas imprudencias tienen. Pero Green no castiga mucho al lector con eso. En lugar de eso, él permite al lector hacer sus propias conclusiones. La novela no tiene un final feliz, pero sí termina con optimismo y esperanza. No hace que el lector llore de la misma manera que en The Fault in Our Stars. Será una bella película que se estrenará en el 2016. Les recomiendo primordialmente que lean el libro antes de ver la película. Entiendo que siempre debe ser así, pero en este caso es sumamente importante para este libro en particular. El estilo literario de Green puede ser poético cuando no está tratando de solamente de ser ingenioso o cómico. Cuando adaptan un libro a una película, todo lo poético se pierde, así que siéntense con el libro. Léanlo. Disfrútenlo. Pueden encontrar Looking for Alaska y muchas de las novelas de John Green en las sucursales de la Biblioteca Pública de New Haven y también una copia electrónica por medio de nuestra base de datos Hoopla or Overdrive en www.nhfpl.org.
0: Thanks so much, Sandra. On our next episode of Book Talk, airing December 16th, we'll be discussing the novel Vaclav and Lena, first with author Haley Tanner and then with returning guests. Annie Toms, and Jessica Sager. Get your copy from the New Haven Free Public Library today and start reading. As ever, you can share your thoughts and questions with us on Facebook and Twitter so you can be part of the conversation. Have books you think we should discuss or want to be be on the show? Email me at booktalkwnhh at gmail.com. Until then, happy reading.